Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, Chapter 1 As we turn the page from Alma, Chapter 63, we are met with a new 16-chapter book in the Book of Mormon. After experiencing the Book of Alma with its great characters and its magnificent sermons, its memorable epistles, and all within the context of multiple missions at its beginning, we can think of the mission around the land of Zarahemla with Amulek and the mission of the sons of Mosiah to the land of Nephi and then the Zoramite mission later, and with multiple wars at its end, which we've just read about. As we consider all of this in connection with the book of Alma, we wonder what will come next as we move into Helaman chapter 1. Will it read in much the same way, or will it have a different feel? We'll explore that question in just a moment. Uh, To put it succinctly, we will discover that the book of Helaman will reflect the style and circumstances of the record keepers and prophets for which it is named. Well, this unique new book in the Book of Mormon is named after Helaman, who was the son of Helaman, as the superscript to Helaman chapter 1 will tell us. This means that Helaman was the grandson of Alma the Younger. He was given charge of the sacred records by his uncle Shiblon at the very end of the book of Alma. Now, we read about that transfer in Alma chapter 63, verses 11 through 13, which said, Therefore it became expedient for Shiblon to confer those sacred things before his death upon the son of Helaman, who was called Helaman, being called after the name of his father. Now behold, all those engravings which were in the possession of Helaman were written and sent forth among the children of men throughout all the land, save it were those parts which had been commanded by Alma should not go forth. Nevertheless, these things were to be kept sacred and handed down from one generation to another. Therefore, in this year, they had been conferred upon Helaman before the death of Shiblon. Well, for us, this sets up the expectation as we leave the book of Alma that the record will continue with this Helaman the Younger, if we can take enough license to apply the same moniker that was attached to his grandfather Alma the Younger, This 16-chapter book will be named after this same Helaman the Younger, then. But his story will actually come to a close at the end of Helaman chapter 3, where we will read that in the fifty and third year of the reign of the judges, Helaman died, and his eldest son Nephi began to reign in his stead. And it came to pass that he did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity. Yea, he did keep the commandments of God, and did walk in the ways of his father." This tells us that the chief prophet and record keeper from this point forward in the book of Helaman will actually be Helaman's son, Nephi. We will learn a great deal from this prophet leader from Helaman chapter 4 to its end in Helaman chapter 16. Nephi's story will end in a very intriguing way when we come to the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 1, and that's something that we'll have the pleasure of discussing later. This also leads us to notice, as we look at the time frame that is covered by the book of Helaman, that its end brings us to the year of B.C. 1. This suggests to us that the book of Helaman will signal the end of an epoch and will carry us to the beginning of the era we often refer to as the meridian of time, when the resurrected Savior will appear in 3 Nephi. In this sense, the book of Helaman is a preparatory book, Like the Nazarite forebearer and cousin to Jesus of Nazareth who preached in the wilderness, the book of Helaman could be considered as an Elias to the book of 3 Nephi. In other words, like John the Baptist himself, the book of Helaman will minister to us as readers as we make our approach to the meridian of time and prepare to receive the one, 
the latchet of whose shoes we are not worthy to stoop down and unloose, as Mark chapter 1, verse 7 put it. Now, to return to the question posed a few moments ago, what will come next as the storytelling narrative has come to a close in Alma chapter 63 and we turn to this new book called the Book of Helaman? As we begin this new 16-chapter book in the Book of Mormon, we will continue to benefit from Mormon's abridging and editing influence. In that sense, there will be a similar degree of continuity as with the junction between the Book of Mosiah and the Book of Alma. At the same time, however, much will change, as we are soon to discover the clear air of the end of the Book of Alma will give way to unprecedented turbulence. To call upon a different analogy, if the Book of Mormon were a symphony, then the cadence chords of resolution that sounded at the end of the Book of Alma, where the story arc of Moroni and Helaman and Pehoran came to a close, and the borders of the Nephite nation were restored. Uh, those satisfying chords give way to a new and cacophonous movement as the book of Helaman begins. Chapter 1 alone is a wild ride. It is a dissonant descent into chaos, really. Internal threats to the government and church are taken to an entirely new level in its opening verses, uh, where we will see new levels of subterfuge and intrigue as Pehoran dies and three of his sons vie for the position left by their father. So we'll read about that in just a bit. Once this is resolved, at least for the time being, in verse 13, with Pecumani as the new chief judge and governor, and this is after his brother Pehoran was murdered and Peonkai was executed according to the law, the text of Helaman chapter 1 will address our next natural question, a question that Mormon has really trained us to ask as we've progressed through the book of Alma. That is, if there is this much internal unrest, or as Moroni once put it in Alma chapter 60, verse 23, if the inner vessel is in this much trouble, what of the external Lamanite threat? We will find in the latter half of this chapter, in verses 14 through 34, that the unthinkable happens. The Lamanites attack the Nephite nation, but in an entirely new way they will bypass the fortified border cities that we read so much about from Alma chapter 50 onward, really. Uh, they will bypass those fortified cities and move straight to Zarahemla, the capital city. This is unimaginable, really, uh, perhaps except to one like Amalickiah that we read about earlier who wished to rule the entire Nephite nation all along. But it wasn't too many chapters back that when in Alma chapter 58, for example, the Lamanites fled from Zarahemla with fear when they were giving chase to Helaman and his armies. So Zarahemla has been the seat of Nephite governance and culture since we first read about it in the book of Omni. It is where Benjamin and Mosiah reigned, and it is where Alma delivered his sermon in Alma chapter 5. It's where Limhi longed to return to, uh, even if his people had to live as servants, uh, it's where Zarahemla is the city where Alma the Elder brought his people to, uh, and where his son, Alma the Younger, became the first chief judge. And Zarahemla was this and so many other things to so many people. As readers, it's hard for us to even imagine that this great city could be overtaken. Uh, we have developed a certain amount of confidence and a sense of constancy with respect to this place. Perhaps this gives us insight into Laman and Lamuel's comment earlier in the small plates of Nephi when they said that they could not conceive of the impending destruction of the great capital city of their day, which of course was Jerusalem. And yet, with Zarahemla, as we will discover, how things will change in such a small time. And, by the way, things changing dramatically within a small time frame is a major theme in the book of Helaman. Mormon will tell us, for example, in Helaman chapter 4, verse 26, and thus they had fallen into this great transgression. Yea, thus had they become weak because of their transgression in the space of not many years. So, alarmingly, and with all of this in mind, the book of Helaman is a story of how precious things can fall apart quickly when a nation is ripened in iniquity. It reminds us that institutional places and figures can be toppled at an alarming rate when this iniquity facilitates designing leaders and corrupt laws. 
indeed seemingly impenetrable cities and seemingly unimpeachable leaders, can give way to darker chaotic forces when, quote, the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, as Mosiah once put it in Mosiah chapter 29, verse 27. Will the end of the book of Helaman bring us back to a point of resolution then, as the end of the book of Alma did? Well, the answer is yes and no, and really mostly no. Many of the problems that we will read of in these 16 chapters will carry into the book of 3 Nephi. But what we also discover as we navigate through these chaotic waters in the book of Helaman is that the example of the faithful can still shine bright in the midst of such iniquity, as can the brilliant light of messianic prophecy. The same is most certainly true for us today. And the book of Helaman will provide us with examples of the faithful and, of course, of messianic prophecy in really rich abundance. Now to look at the structure of Helaman chapter 1, we can look at it more broadly and say that the early part or the first half of this chapter has to do with internal problems or the inner vessel, uh, internal problems in the Nephite nation. And then the external threat is addressed in the latter half of the chapter. So we might look at it that way. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we see that Pehoran dies. Um, At this point, three of his sons, and there seem to be three associated factions among the people, they all vie for the judgment seat. So we'll read about that. In the end, as we see in verse 5, Pehoran, and this would be the son of Pehoran, is appointed as chief judge in the end of this process. However, this leads to trouble, not on the part of Pecumenai, who is Pehoran's brother. He does agree, as we see in verse 6, to comply and to unite with the will of the people. However, the other brother, Peonkai, as we'll find in verses 7 through 8, has other ideas. He's not willing to comply and unite. Instead, Peonkai leads a rebellion, and in so doing, he is condemned by the law to death. However, as I've mentioned earlier, each of these three brothers seem to have associated factions. This is especially true of Peonkai. Even though he is condemned to death, he still has followers who shared his ambitions, and so they do something very insidious. In verses 9 through 12, we'll see how Peonkai's followers employ a man named Kishkuman, and they employ him to murder Pehoran. Kishkuman is successful in doing so. And we'll read about that in verse 9, when it says that he murdered Pehoran as he sat upon the judgment seat. Pehoran, excuse me, Kishkumen, and later his alliance with Gadianton will be a critical point of discussion for us as we progress through the book of Helaman. So now at this point, again remembering that there are three brothers, Pehoran has been murdered, Peonkai has been executed, And so now one brother remains, and that's Pecumenai. So in verse 13, we'll find that he assumes the judgment seat in Pehoran's stead. So that brings us up through the end of verse 13. And now for the remaining verses in the chapter, verses 14 through 34, we'll now consider the Lamanite threat. So we'll turn to the outer vessel, as it were. So in verses 14... Through 17, we'll read that the Lamanites, who are led now by a Mulekite named Coriantumr, uh, who is a dissenter from the Nephites, of course, uh, led by Coriantumr and the, 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 the sitting Lamanite king, who in this case is the son of Amulon, and his name is Tubaloth. These Lamanites prepare to attack the Nephites once again. This time, as we'll discover in verses 18 through 21, This is a different kind of attack than what we have read of previously in the book of Alma. Just to review that for a moment, there was the incident in Alma chapters 43 and 44 when Zarahemna made an attack upon uh, Nephite cities, uh, ultimately failed and went back to the land of uh, the Lamanites, to the land of Nephi, and so all the borders stayed the same. Then later we had Amalickiah's attack in Alma chapter 49, And again, his armies are rebuffed, and the borders stay the same. Then we came to Alma chapter 51, and because of the internal dissensions and really civil war caused by the kingmen, 
This time when Amalekiah attacks, he is able to gain a foothold into the Lamanite nation and effectively move the borders of the Lamanite nation higher up into the Nephite nation. The nature of all of the wars from that time till the end of Alma chapter 63 was that the goal was to drive the Lamanites out of these fortified border cities back into the land of Nephi, back into the Lamanite kingdom. This is finally accomplished in the southwestern front by Helaman and his armies, and we read about the end of that in in Alma chapter 58, and then it's accomplished by Moroni and his armies in the southeast front of the battle, which we read about in Alma 62. So that was the context for all of the wars, really, uh, in the end of the book of Alma. So now, again, something very different is happening here because these Lamanites come together, and in verses 18 through 21, as they attack the Nephite nation, they pass by these border cities and actually attack and conquer the city of Zarahemla. So we talked about that, of course, in the introduction. Coriantumr in this personally confronts and kills Pecumeni. So now here we are into verse 21, and the third son of Pehoran has already lost his life. So by the time we come to the end of Alma chapter 1, uh, there, there is no successor to the chief judge seat uh, coming out of Pehoran's family. So someone else has to fill that seat. We will deal with that issue in Helaman chapter 2 and discover, of course, that Helaman, and I kind of like calling him Helaman the Younger. I hope that's okay. That That's not um, the way that he's referred to as the text, but it does differentiate between him and Alma the Younger's great son, Helaman. So Helaman the Younger will assume the seat of the chief judgeship and also is the record keeper and is presumably the prophet. So he takes upon himself that same dual role that his grandfather, Alma the Younger, took upon himself at the beginning of the book of Alma. So now with the Lamanites having done this unthinkable thing, where they have taken over the city of Zarahemla, we'll find in verses 24 that their expansion campaign continues. Uh, Coriantumr, again this Mulekite dissenter from the, the Nephites, and the Lamanites, led by King Tubaloth, begin a campaign to conquer all the land. And So their next goal is to move to the land bountiful. At this point, we'll find that Moroniha, now this is Captain Moroni's son that was appointed in Moroni's stead at the end of the book of Alma. So now our military leader is Moroni's son, Moroniha. That this uh, eventuality does give Moroniha an advantage. And in fact, the word that's used in verse 25 is that it gives him a great advantage over the Lamanite forces. And that's because they've come into the very center of the land. So having done so, uh, Moroniha can then gain an advantage by sending Lehi to cut off Coriantumr in his march towards Bountiful, because that's what they want to do next. So as they do so, we find in verses 29 through 32 that Lehi attacks, and this causes Coriantumr to retreat back to Zarahemla. Uh, Nephiha is then able to attack the retreating armies, and Coriantumr, this dissenting leader, this Mulekite leader, is found among the slain. And at this point, the Lamanites surrender. This leads us to a point of resolution in verses 33 and 34, where we learn that the Nephites, through all of this, they do repossess the land of Zarahemla. And so the surviving Lamanites are sent back to their land. So this is an account, much like with Alma 43 and 44, where an attack is mounted in the land of the Nephites. Not the land of Nephi, but in the Nephite kingdom, or the Nephite nation, I should say. An attack is mounted against these people, but in the end, the Nephites are victorious, and the borders between the Nephites and the Lamanites do stay the same. What we can kind of expect then, just as we read in Alma, we can expect that there will be more attempts in the future to take over Nephite lands. And so, of course, we'll read about that later. So this brings us up to the end of the first, excuse me, the 40 and first year of the reign of the judges as we come to verse 34 in Helaman chapter 1. So that's a flyover summary, and now that brings us back to a verse-by-verse reading of this chapter. As was the case at the beginning of the book of Alma, there is a headnote to this, which seems to have been written by Mormon. So this headnote, it says the book of Helaman, and then there's a paragraph underneath that. So I'll first read that paragraph 
then some associated commentary, and then we'll move into verse 1 of Helaman chapter 1. So the headnote reads like this, The book of Helaman, an account of the Nephites, their wars and contentions, and their dissensions, and also the prophecies of many holy prophets before the coming of Christ, according to the records of Helaman, who was the son of Helaman, and also according to the records of his sons, even down to the coming of Christ. That's quite interesting because it says sons plural, uh, because uh, Lehi is not uh, ostensibly the record keeper here, but he is uh, very much an important companion to Nephi, who's the record keeper. And also, many of the Lamanites are converted, an account of their conversion, an account of the righteousness of the Lamanites and the wickedness and abominations of the Nephites, according to the record of Helaman and his sons, even down to the coming of Christ, which is called the book of Helaman, and so forth. So there is a major flip here. There's a major transition, and and Samuel the Lamanite personifies this as we will come to the end of the book of Helaman and discover that, indeed, the Lamanites become very righteous and, and the Nephites become even more depraved. So it's an important theme in this book. Well, here's here are two pieces of commentary on the book of Helaman, and there's some redundant information between them, but I'd still like to read them both. First, this from Ogden and Skinner. The book of Helaman is an example of annalistic or annual writing. Almost every year is mentioned. Mormon, the prophet historian, was very selective, though. Only the best lessons are noted. And thus we see, as what they say in parentheses here, and we'll see Mormon saying that several times in the book of Helaman. This half-century record, just before the Savior's coming into the world, is full of political intrigue and social destruction by highly professional, organized, and sophisticated secret combinations. The motives and objectives of the Gadianton robbers and other such secret societies were power, wealth, and popularity, the glory of men. The methods they used were murder, political assassination, robbery, extortion, and so forth. It is revealing to note how often contentions and dissensions are mentioned. Notice also that pride and riches are often at the top of the list of spiritual and social ills. Uh, The secret societies used covenants, oaths, and signs and tokens, and all are perversions of true principles and sacred precepts. As in that day, so in ours, secret combinations are best fought with our open combinations. The righteousness of the saints, especially the missionary force. In the face of increasing societal maladies, the Church of God flourished and tens of thousands of people came to a knowledge of the Redeemer. Uh, That happened in Helaman chapter 3 verse 26. Despite the cunning, snares, and wiles of the devil, and wiles or tricks or lures, many were able to fast and pray, to humble themselves, to show faith, and become purified or sanctified by yielding their hearts unto God and becoming children of Christ. So we'll read of all of these things, of course, as we move through the book of Helaman. And this, the, the aspect here of secret combinations, besides mentioning Kishkumen, is something that we really have yet to talk about, but we will um, in great measure as we move through this. Uh, this for now from Thomas Arvaletta. He says, the book of Helaman shows the Nephites and Lamanites frequently fluctuating between righteousness and wickedness. It shows the dangers of secret combinations and exposes the activities of the Gadianton robbers, whose works of darkness would lead to wars and eventually bring about the destruction of the Nephites. Yet, during this time of general wickedness, many of the Lamanites accept the gospel and are converted and become more righteous than the Nephites. The role of prophets is vividly portrayed in the book of Helaman. For example, Nephi reveals the murder of a chief judge and identifies the murder by prophecy. With priesthood power, the prophet Nephi brings about a famine and later ends it. That happens in Mormon chapters 10 and 11. Mormon highlights the pride cycle, which so often afflicts the Nephite, particularly in Helaman chapter 12. Samuel, a Lamanite prophet, foretells signs that will accompany the birth and death of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in Helaman chapters 13 through 15. The believers are rewarded for by witnessing the fulfillment of some of these signs, while unbelievers conclude that it is not reasonable to believe in Jesus Christ or the accompanying signs. The book of Helaman covers the years from about 52 B.C. to 1 B.C. Now focusing in on Helaman chapter 1, Ogden and Skinner have said, before we move into verse 1, When men of consuming pride and self-importance, such as Paonkai and his supporters, refuse to follow the voice of the people in an established democracy, contention, then murder, then the rise of secret combinations occur. Verse 1. 
And now behold, it came to pass in the commencement of the fortieth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, there began to be a serious difficulty among the people of the Nephites. So let's just remember for a moment, now that we're reading verse 1 of Helaman chapter 1, how Alma ended. Alma chapter 62, for example, verse 50, said, They did remember how great things the Lord had done for them. And they've come to this season of peace after the Lamanites have finally been driven out. That he had delivered them from death and from bonds and from prisons and from all manner of afflictions, and he had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. And they did pray unto the Lord their God continually, insomuch that the Lord did bless them according to his word, so that they did wax strong and did prosper in the land. And it came to pass that all these things were done. So there's our great sense of resolution as we come to the end of Alma chapter 62. So that's kind of the tone of things. And then Alma chapter 63 dealt with many of the details. It brought uh, Moroni's story to an end, and it showed what Helaman did once he returned to uh, his role as the prophet of the land and what Pehoran did as he returned to his role, and it talked about northward migration. So all of these things are happening at the end of the book of Alma. And so that's now what we read when we come to verse 1 and see that in the commencement of the 40th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, there began to be a serious difficulty among the people of the Nephites. This really is very disappointing to us right out of the gate as we start Helaman. It wasn't so long ago that Pehoran had taken the judgment seat, or the judgment seat had been taken from him, and he went into the land of Gideon to um, gather the free men together. And then Moroni came and joined Pehoran, and they reclaimed Zarahemla and the judgment seat therein from internal dissenters. So all of that was brought to a close at the end of Alma, and so now we find a new serious difficulty has arisen. So here it is in verse 2, For behold, Pehoran had died and had gone the way of all the earth. Now, we kind of expect this because he's a contemporary to Helaman and to Moroni, and both of them had died. So Pehoran dies here in verse 2. Therefore, there began to be a serious contention concerning who should have the judgment seat among the brethren who were the sons of Pehoran. So now it's time to uh, appoint a new chief judge, but in this case, it's not happening smoothly as it seemed to uh, happen between Nephiha and Pehoran. At least it seemed to. Uh, it may not have been very smooth then either because that seems to have been related with the ambitions of the king men. Uh, they, they didn't um, seem to agree with the way that Nephiha passed it on to Pehoran. But in any event, um, here is this, this problem that's now happening among the sons of Pehoran. Verse 3, Now these are their names who did contend for the judgment seat, and who did also cause the people to contend, Pehoran, Peonchi, and Pecumani. Now these are not all the sons of Pehoran, for he had many, but these are they who did contend for the judgment seat, therefore they did cause three divisions among the people. So these three sons and their three factions are vying for the judgment seat. What happened to the king men? We're not sure. They're not mentioned here, really. What we're about to discover, though, is that Peonchi is the one who leads a rebellion, and so perhaps uh, he is still, uh, or he is aligned somehow with this kingman movement if uh, the seeds of the kingman are still uh, alive within uh, Nephite society, which is likely. Verse 5, Nevertheless, it came to pass that Pehoran was appointed by the voice of the people to be chief judge and a governor over the people of Nephi. So these three divisions, there's one uh, particular division and faction and one son that won according to the voice of the people. So they had a say, or they had the say in who would become the new chief judge, and that was Pehoran, or we could call him Pehoran too. Verse 6, And it came to pass that Pecumani, when he saw that he could not obtain the judgment seat, he did unite with the voice of the people. So that is to be expected. That's going as it should. Pecumani and his people uh, have enough respect for the rule of the law, of the rule of law, and the way that an election would happen in democracy. That they're willing to fall in line with the results of that, and uh, to move forward in peace and liberty. Now, verse seven, Peonchi goes in a different direction. But behold, Peonchi and that part of the people that were desirous that he should be their governor was exceedingly wroth. Therefore, he was about to flatter away those people to rise up in rebellion against their brethren. And we, we do wonder here if not only did he want to be the chief judge, but perhaps he wanted to be a king. 
the way that flattery is used here is very similar to the story of the king men earlier. So perhaps that's what's happening here, but we're not told that. Verse 8, And it came to pass, as he was about to do this, behold, he was taken, and was tried according to the voice of the people, and condemned unto death. For he had raised up in rebellion, and sought to destroy the liberty of the people. How, of course, did he seek to destroy the liberty of the people in this case? Well, he's not willing to uh, give way to the democratic system that had been put in place by King Mosiah. So let's pause for a moment uh, now that there's a great deal that we've taken in in these first eight verses, and now Paonkai has been executed according to the law. Let's read some commentary. First, this from Hugh Nibley. The contention of the sons of Pehoran for the judgment seat is a good example of what can happen in a democracy when men refuse to accept the will of the people. The contention for the judgment seat opened the way for much evil and eventually resulted in the downfall of the Nephite nation. Note the following points found in Helaman chapter 1. Those who sought to circumvent the law for personal power were willing to resort to murder to get their way. We see that in verse 9. Uh, so we're about to read that and the way that Kishkumen was employed. Then the contention over the judgment seat gave the attacking Lamanites an advantage against the Nephites. We'll see that in verses 18 and 20. And I've misspoke. What I've just read was from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. Now this is from Hugh Nibley, and he talks about the significance of the names Pehoran, Peonkai, and Pecumini. There were three sons of Pehoran, named Pehoran, Peonkai, and Pecumini. Peonkai is the one indisputable Egyptian name in the Book of Mormon. Nobody can ever dispute that, either that Joseph Smith could have invented it or that it could not be pure 100% Egyptian, because Peonkai was a very important person in Egyptian history just before Lehi's day. It means Ammon is my life, and Pecumini and Pehoran mean the person is Assyrian. That's what an Egyptian would call a person from northern Palestine. These are familiar Egyptian names. There's more interesting commentary on the this Egyptian connection. And this is from Alonzo Gaskell from The Lost Language of Symbolism. He says, this name Peonkai has been called the one indisputable Egyptian name in the Book of Mormon. Of course, there he's quoting Nibley from what we just read. It was unknown at the time Joseph translated the Book of Mormon and has been established as the name of a very important person in Egyptian history just before Lehi's day. The name is Egyptian and means Ammon or God is my life. The name is far from fitting in light of the fact that Peonkai led a ferocious rebellion against the people and his own brother Pehoran too, drawing away many followers in the process. Once again, this may be an example of a name bestowed at birth in the hope that the child would live up to it. If this be the case, Peonkai failed miserably. Now we have this piece of insight from John Welch in his book Legal Cases in the Book of Mormon, where he talks about the way in which Peonkai was tried for his crime and he was tried according to the voice of the people. So we just read about that in verses 7 and 8. So Welch writes, Had not Pehoran, the newly installed governor and chief judge, the right and the duty to judge all such cases? It may well have been that the law of conspiracy was not clearly settled under Nephite law. Seeing the possible conflict between legal action on conspiracy and the rights affording, afforded people to believe and to think what they wanted, Pehoran may have determined that this case needed to be submitted to the people for their determination. So that's kind of how Welch is interpreting this phrase, that, that Peonkai was tried according to the voice of the people. I suppose another way of looking at it is that Peonkai would have been tried by those uh, specialists who had been appointed by the voice of the people. It, it seems that that, too, could be a way of understanding that, but Welch uh, looks at it in a slightly different way. Now, finally, this from McConkie and Millet. Payankai is tried for a capital offense, not because he disagreed with the outcome of the election or because he sought to become the chief judge, but rather that he raised up in rebellion and sought to destroy the liberty of the people. His crime is one of sedition and treason. He is to be judged according to the laws established by Mosiah too. The exact nature of the voice of the people that found him guilty and condemned him to death is not given in the text. But based on other uses of the phrase, it is either a democratic process, such as a jury of peers or possibly a theodemocratic council of judges, as is perhaps implied by the record of the trial of Nehor. So there, of course, is another way of looking at this idea that he was tried by the voice of the people. 
So now that brings us up to uh, or through verse 8, where we see what has happened to these sons so far. And now we'll discover what happens to Pehoran too. Even though Peonchi has been put to death, and even though Pecumenai has fallen into line with the democratic process, uh, something is now to take place that will be the seeds of secret combinations. Uh, and we'll read a great deal more about that again later as we come through the book of Helaman. So verse 9, Now when those people who were desirous that he should be their governor saw that he was condemned unto death, now, these people, again, remember there's a faction for each of these three sons. So this faction wanted very much for Peonchi to be their governor, and perhaps they wanted him to be even more than a governor. This is my conjecture again, but it seems that they are behaving very much like the king men. Therefore, they were angry, and behold, they sent forth one Kishkumen, even to the judgment seat of Pehoran, and murdered Pehoran as he sat upon the judgment seat. And he was pursued by the servants of Pehoran. But behold, so speedy was the flight of Kishkumen that no man could overtake him. So it's clear here that in his murder of Pehoran too, Kishkumen was seen by Pehoran's servants. However, as we're about to discover, he was in disguise. And we'll discover that he was so fast, as we just actually did discover in verse 10, so speedy was the flight of Kishkumen that no man could overtake him. Verse 11, And he went unto those that sent him, and they all entered into a covenant, yea, swearing by their everlasting maker that they would tell no man that Kishkumen had murdered Pehoran. Now, as we consider what we've just read in verse 11, that there is a covenant uh, that is made by these conspiring parties, we can think back to the time in which Alma transferred the record to Helaman. Now, this is the father of the Helaman that, that, that this... Uh, book is named after. But when Alma transferred the record to Helaman in Alma chapter 45, he spoke extensively of what was in the plates that he was transferring, particularly the 24 Jaredite plates. And he did that in Helaman chapter, or excuse me, in Alma chapter 37. It was there that Alma talked about oaths and covenants that were uh, employed by these secret societies that Helaman was not to disclose or translate or to disseminate among the people. So now we're reading about this uh, taking place, that there are oaths being employed by these conspirators. This is the first time then that we'll wonder how they came about these secret um, oaths and these secret ways, which are all kind of embodied in the term secret combinations. Mormon will address this later, uh, not at this point. He will assure us that... uh, Helaman did live true to his charge to not disseminate those things that that were contained in those 24 Jaredite plates, and neither did his son Helaman. But instead, these wicked people arrived at the same uh, oaths and covenants that embody the practice of secret combinations. They they arrived at them in the same way that Cain did. So this is something that we'll we'll talk about lots uh, in the future. Uh, At the moment, though, here's some commentary from McConkie, Bruce R. McConkie, out of Mormon Doctrine. He said, Beginning in the days of Cain and continuing through all generations, whenever there have been unrighteous and apostate peoples on earth, Satan has revealed unto them his oaths, vows, and secret combinations. So again, this addresses this issue that even though Helaman did not uh, make these things available to the people, they still arrived at those things independently because Satan himself revealed it unto them. And Mormon will confirm this later. Now McConkie continues, murder, plunder, robbery, power, the destruction of freedom, and the persecution of the saints have been the objectives of these societies ever since. And there he references Moses chapter 5, and then also uh, Helaman chapter 6, where we'll, we'll go into a more lengthy discussion of this. These secret societies, says Elder McConkie, flourished before the flood. They gained great strength among the Jaredites on this continent, and the Gadiatan robbers and the Lamanites revealed them in the Nephite days, and they are had in all parts of the earth today. McConkie and Millet have written, so this is Joseph Fielding McConkie, uh, Bruce R. McConkie's son, and Robert L. Millet in their doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon, have written, After Kishkumen murders Pehoran, these followers of Peonchi enter into a covenant bound by secret oaths to tell no one of their complicity in their murder. A number of those accomplices to the murder are executed, yet many hide themselves by mingling among the people. 
this remnant of dissidents becomes the genesis of the secret combinations that would continually plague the people of Nephi and would ultimately bring about their destruction as a nation. Uh, Mormon himself will tell us as much. As we consider all of this, uh, there's something really curious in verse 11 because these conspirators enter into a covenant, and as verse 11 says, swearing by their everlasting maker. So they're calling upon the name of God. Uh, So that's kind of uh, unusual, it would seem, that they would do that. Uh, Daniel Peterson has written on this. Uh, He has said, The conspirators then swore an oath of silence. Intriguingly, the Nephite record tells us that it was a religious oath, swearing by their everlasting maker. This seems odd to those of us unaccustomed to thinking of murder as a religious act. But the very word assassin was given to us by a religious sect of the medieval Near East who bore it as a name. The assassins carried out daring murders for many years from mixed religions and political motives. And it would seem from the story of Cain and Abel, as recorded in the book of Moses, that such religious oaths go back to the very beginning of human history. The Book of Mormon declares that the origin of such murderous conspiracies can be traced back to Lucifer through Cain, who was a murderer from the beginning. And Ether chapter 8 will talk about that, and Helaman chapter 6 will treat this subject as well. Following their strange, quasi-religious meeting, the successful conspirators dispersed to their various ordinary pursuits, blending into Nephite society in such a way that their government could find only some of them. So religiously, if we may use that word, did they keep their oaths that many of the group, including Kishkuman himself, remained at large. So now this episode comes to a close in verse 12. Therefore, Kishkuman was not known among the people of Nephi, for he was in disguise at the time that he murdered Pehoran. So that's significant, remember, because Pehoran's servants did see him and they did give him chase. And Kishkuman and his band who had covenanted with him did mingle themselves among the people in a manner that they could not be found. But as many as were found were condemned unto death. So now we would expect that because Pehoran has died in this manner, and because Pecumeni, excuse me, because Peonkai has been executed, that uh, Pecumeni remains. And so verse 13 says, And now behold, Pecumeni was appointed, according to the voice of the people, to be a chief judge and a governor over the people, to reign in the stead of his brother Pehoran, and it was according to his right. And all this was done in the fortieth year of the reign of the judges, and it had an end. So it seems almost as though everything has been turned up a notch. The kingmen caused so much trouble. We were so disappointed with the trouble that they caused in Alma chapter 51, which allowed Amalickiah and his Lamanite armies to really come into the Nephite nation for the first time and to take over these beautifully fortified cities. So we saw that. Uh, But this particular level of dissension and uh, the employment of Kishkumen and the oath that these conspirators have made with one another, and and the seeming religiosity with which they have done it, uh, which Daniel Peterson just talked about. This is a new level. So these first 13 uh, verses of the book of Helaman are truly jarring. Uh, We're moving into an environment here that um, is, is chaotic and dissonant indeed. So there's much that needs to be resolved. So now our attention will turn, and as I mentioned in the introduction to this, Mormon, as, a, as an editor and an abridger, has almost trained us to think this way. Uh, that was especially true in Alma chapter 51, for example. Uh, now that we're seeing that, that this thing has been kind of brought to rest, and now Pecumeni is at the judgment seat, there's been so much trouble, we, we just have to wonder at this point, What's happening externally in terms of the the Lamanite threat? So this is what we'll learn about in the remainder of the chapter. Verse 14, And it came to pass in the forty and first year of the reign of the judges that the Lamanites had gathered together an innumerable army of men and armed them with swords and with scimitars and with bows and with arrows and with headplates and with breastplates and with all manner of shields of every kind. Well, that's significant because uh, lessons have been learned by the Lamanites. At this point, they do believe in armor. Uh, Of course, Moroni taught them that very vividly in Alma chapter 43. Verse 15, And they came down again that they might pitch battle against the Nephites. So at this point, we wonder, all right, what motivated them to do so after the losses that they had recently suffered? And we really came under the impression that Amalickiah, with his propaganda, 
uh, was able to stir the Lamanites up to anger so that they would go against the Nephites to battle. But we read of the lack of success that his successor had, the, the Lamanite king. Uh, he sent out a proclamation telling the Lamanites to go to war, but they didn't want to at that time. So there is some inertia here when it comes to the desire of the Lamanites to come against the Nephites, and it seems continually necessary for a false narrative to be perpetuated through propaganda and for a party such as an Amalekiah or an Amaron, and they're always dissenters, Zarahemna did it too, uh, to come in among the Lamanites and to motivate them to go to, to war against the Nephites. So sure enough, it's happening again, and we're wondering, okay, who is it this time? Who's the dissenter this time? So verse 15 says, and they were led by a man whose name was Coriantumr. All right, so here's the new dissenter. And he was a descendant of Zarahemla. And he was a dissenter from among the Nephites, and he was a large and a mighty man. So he has his largeness and his mightiness in common with other characters such as Amalickiah, and undoubtedly he too was persuasive and probably well-spoken. Uh, so he being a descendant of Zarahemla, it would be accurate to call him a Mulekite, really. Well, here's some commentary from Reynolds and Sojal on the, uh, the identity of this dissenter, Coriantumr. Coriantumr was a descendant of Zarahemla and consequently was most likely of Judah. Now, there, there is commentary that we've read previously that suggests that the Mulekites may have been from the, the line of Judah. Originally, he was a Nephite, but like many others during the days of the judges, he dissented and went over to the Lamanites. He was a man of commanding presence, of more than ordinary stature and brilliant parts, with a reputation for wisdom which his later course scarcely appears to warrant. Uh, we, we have to wonder at this point, for example, if Corianton, or if Coriantumur, excuse me, has lived among the Lamanites for a long time, and perhaps he fought under the leadership of Amalickiah or Amaron. That seems very plausible, that he would have been in those southern fortified cities and uh, would have been very motivated from all of those experiences uh, to come back among the Nephites and exploit their weaknesses. It could be that he had been among the Lamanites for that long. I don't think the text tells us. Or it could be that he's a recent dissenter. So we really don't know which. Now Reynolds and Sojal continue, Tubaloth, king of the Lamanites, gave him, meaning Coriantumr, high office. And when, in 51 BC, the invasion of Zarahemla was determined upon, Coriantumr was placed in command of a vast host, which was well-armed and was raised particularly for that purpose. At this time, through internal dissensions, the Nephites were weak and distracted. So that's Coriantumr. He is the character behind, uh, he, he is the one, it seems, that's motivating the Lamanites to invade the Nephites once again. Now, who is the king at this point? Because Amaron had been slain at the end of the account uh, in the book of Alma. We knew that Teancum slew Amaron, and we didn't read who was appointed in his stead. Uh, we knew that uh, Teancum died in the attempt, uh, but he still was successful in killing Amaron. Well, here we find that Amaron's successor is his son, and his name is Tubaloth. So, verse 16, Therefore the king of the Lamanites, whose name was Tubaloth, who was the son of Amaron, supposing that Coriantumr, being a mighty man, could stand against the Nephites with his strength and also with his great wisdom, insomuch that by sending him forth he should gain power over the Nephites. So his strength has already been referenced as we are introduced to Coriantumr, but his great wisdom is added uh, to his list of characteristics here in verse 16. Uh, so perhaps he was a great military strategist and perhaps had already had a lot of experience uh, fighting against the Nephites previously. Daniel Peterson has written this uh, with respect to Tubaloth and why it was that he appointed Coriantumr. It may be remembered that this king named Tubaloth was not really a Lamanite. Rather, he was the son of Amaron, the brother and successor of the notoriously unscrupulous Nephite adventurer Amalickiah. Tubaloth had chosen yet another dissenter from the Nephites by the name of Coriantumr to lead his warriors. It was certainly a common practice of those who would lead the Lamanites into battle against the Nephites to choose apostates as their assistants, meaning apostate Nephites. These apostates could be counted upon to fill a powerful hatred for the Nephites, which made them very useful to the great manipulators who appear with such appalling frequency in the pages of the Book of Mormon. Now verse 17, regarding Coriantumr, Therefore he did stir them to anger, and he did gather together his armies, and he did appoint Coriantumr to be their leader, and did cause that they should march down to the land of Zarahemla to battle against the Nephites. 
Uh, now I've misspoken there. The the he in verse seventeen is Tubaloth. So he is uh, apparently using um, probably some of the same techniques as his father Amaron and his uncle Amalekiah in stirring the Lamanites up to anger, probably used propaganda in similar ways. So we can see this is kind of a worst-case scenario as we uh, dealt with all of the turbulence that took place um, as Pehoran died and the judgment seat was passed on to one of his sons. Uh, that it's a worst-case scenario to discover that there's a new dissenter that is um, leading the charge and that the Lamanites are going to invade again. But this worst-case scenario goes even beyond what we might imagine because really, because of what we've read in Alma, uh, we would expect that the attack would be on border cities, these same fortified border cities that were uh, fought in and over and around uh, in the end of the book of Alma. So we'll discover that something different is going to happen here. Of course, we know that that has to do with Zarahemla. Verse 18, And it came to pass that because of so much contention and so much difficulty in the government, so there's that inner vessel concept again, that they had not kept sufficient guards in the land of Zarahemla, for they had supposed that the Lamanites durst not come into the heart of their lands to attack that great city, Zarahemla. So there's no precedent for it, at least at least not for us as readers. Uh, maybe they had thought of it, um, but there, there was no precedent for that. But it came to pass that Coriantumr did march forth at the head of his numerous host and came upon the inhabitants of the city, and their march was with such exceedingly great speed that there was no time for the Nephites to gather together their armies. Therefore Coriantumr did cut down the watch by the entrance of the city and did march forth with his whole army into the city, and they did slay everyone who did oppose them insomuch that they did take possession of the whole city." We've talked plenty already about just how shocking that really is, but it's, I think, something worth considering for a moment. There are just so many proper nouns in the Book of Mormon, and there are so many places, and it can be difficult to differentiate between the land of Zarahemla, uh, as as in the Nephite nation, and also the land of Zarahemla, which could almost be likened to a territory or county within the greater land of Zarahemla, and then the city of Zarahemla. So, we really can almost become numb, I think, to all of these, uh, uh, these these place names and these people names, but it really is good, I think, to consider just how unlikely it would have felt uh, for the Lamanites to be able to break into the Nephite nation and and to, to invade so deeply into that nation and to take over the city of Zarahemla. It really is remarkable. It really is very surprising, and it shows us that something without such precedent can occur. Verse 21, And it came to pass that Pecumani, who was the chief judge, did flee before Coriantumr even to the walls of the city. And it came to pass that Coriantumr did smite him against the wall, insomuch that he died. And thus ended the days of Pecumani. So let's think just for a moment about how much we admired Pehoran, this successor to the, the chief judge seat uh, of, of his father Nephiha. And we read about the way in which he was kind of unfairly accused by Moroni in his epistle in Alma chapter 60, and just with what uh, level of grace and dignity and Christ-like charity uh, Pehoran um, displayed when he responded to, to Moroni. So Pehoran is somebody that we really admire here in this story. And so to see such a tragic end to each of his three sons, his son who was his namesake, Pehoran, uh, died uh, in such a sad way, being murdered by Kishkumen himself, and then Peankai uh, tragically being executed according to the, the necessities of the law. And now Pecumani has been killed by uh, uh, the leader of a Nephite army who's come all the way into the city of Zarahemla. So these things just would have been unthinkable for us just a few chapters back. So it's quite remarkable. So And thus ended the days of Pecumani. Susan Black, in her book, 400 Questions and Answers, addresses the question of why it is that Zarahemla could be attacked like this, when everything else up to this point has had to do with border cities. She said those who sought power in high places resorted to murder to gain that power. In so doing, they weakened the internal structure of the Nephite government, giving the Lamanites a decided advantage over the Nephites. The violent acts of murder by those in secret combinations were hard to prevent because the Nephites themselves were in a degraded state. The Gadianton band never succeeded in their plans to overthrow the government when the Nephites were experiencing periods of spiritual growth in their society. 
Now the Book of Mormon Institute manual talks more generally about the destructive nature of contention. The Book of Helaman recounts a period of great wickedness among the Nephites. The Gadianton robbers thrived, and the masses endured several cycles of wickedness and destructions, followed by repentance only to return to wickedness. So that would be a good general description of the entire book of Helaman, an appropriate uh, commentary uh, to go alongside the commentary that we read at the very beginning. Many of these troubles could be attributed to contention that began in the first chapter of Helaman. While some people might consider contention to be a rather innocuous sin, the following general authorities have commented on the dangers of contention. President James E. Faust of the First Presidency stated in forthright terms that the Spirit of the Lord cannot abide contention. He said, When there is contention, the Spirit of the Lord will depart, regardless of who is at fault. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained that contention is purposefully fostered by Satan to serve his own evil purposes. He said, the sins of corruption, dishonesty, strife, contention, and other evils in this world are not here by chance. They are evidences of the relentless campaign of Satan and those who follow him. He uses every tool and device available to him to deceive, confuse, and mislead. In contrast to the destructive impact of contention, President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency emphasized the unity of the spirit of peace. Quote, where people have that spirit with them, we may expect harmony. The spirit puts the testimony of truth in our hearts, which unifies those who share that testimony. The spirit of God never generates contention. It never generates the feelings of distinctions between people, which lead to strife. It leads to personal peace and a feeling of union with others. It unifies souls. A unified family, a unified church, and a world at peace depend on unified souls. Well, now after that, I think, very thought-provoking commentary and something to deeply consider when we consider our own day, uh, we come back to the text here, and in verses 23 through 24, we see that the Lamanites want more than simply to take over Zarahemla. So verse 22, And now when Coriantumr saw that he was in possession of the city of Zarahemla, remember that he had just murdered Pecumenai, and saw that the Nephites had fled before them and were slain and were taken and were cast into prison, and that he had obtained the possession of the strongest hold in all the land, his heart took courage, insomuch that he was about to go forth against all the land. So he had truly, from the perspective of the Lamanites, accomplished something incredible here, and he's not done yet. Verse 23, And now he did not tarry in the land of Zarahemla, but he did march forth with a large army, even towards the city of Bountiful. For it was his determination to go forth and cut his way through with the sword, that he might obtain the north parts of the land. And supposing that their greatest strength was in the center of the land, therefore he did march forth, giving them no time to assemble themselves together, save it were in small bodies. And in this manner they did fall upon them and cut them down to the earth. So now in verses 25 through 28, we'll see that strategically speaking, there is some sense of silver lining to what is happening here for Moronihah. But behold, this march of Coriantumr through the center of the land gave Moronihah great advantage over them, notwithstanding the greatness of the number of the Nephites who were slain. For behold, Moronihah had supposed that the Lamanites durst not come into the center of the land. So Moronihah was was not alone in that, or I should say Tubaloth and Coriantumr were not alone in their assumption uh, that the the Nephites would not have expected the Lamanites to come into the center. Uh, but that, that's true from Moronihah as well, but this is actually an advantage. But that they would attack the cities round about in the borders as they had hitherto done. Now, that, of course, that's a very loaded statement because that's what we read about in, in the book of Alma, especially beginning in Alma chapter 51. That is what they had hitherto done. Therefore, Moronihah had caused that their strong armies should maintain those parts round about by the borders. So, in other words, even though the Lamanites have gone to the center of the land, and uh, they have killed many in so doing and conquered much, the strength of the Nephite armies is still at the periphery, and they have not yet suffered from this Lamanite attack, and they're still alive and well and capable. So Moronihah can now take advantage of these uh, Nephite armies, which are around the periphery of the nation. Verse 27, But behold, the Lamanites were not frightened according to his desire, But they had come into the center of the land and had taken the capital city, which was the city of Zarahemla, and were marching through the most capital parts of the land, slaying the people with a great slaughter, both men, women, and children. 
taking possession of many cities and many strongholds. So there's the unspeakable tragedy in all of this that's kind of embedded inside of this strategic story. So now back to the strategy. Verse 28, But when Moroni Ha had discovered this, he immediately sent forth Lehi with an army roundabout to head them before they should come to the land of Bountiful. And thus he did. And he did head them before they came to the land of Bountiful, meaning Lehi, this great leader that we know so much about already, and gave unto them battle insomuch that they began to retreat back towards the land of Zarahemla. And it came to pass that Moroniha did head them in their retreat and did give unto them battle, insomuch that it became an exceedingly bloody battle. Yea, many were slain, and among the number who were slain, Coriantumr was also found. And now, behold, the Lamanites could not retreat either way, neither on the north, nor on the south, nor on the east, nor on the west, for they were surrounded on every hand by the Nephites. Verse 32, And thus had Coriantumr plunged the Lamanites into the midst of the Nephites, insomuch that they were in the power of the Nephites, and he himself was slain, and the Lamanites did yield themselves into the hands of the Nephites. So it was a strategically bold maneuver by Coriantumr to do what he did, in taking over Zarahemla, and it gave him quick uh, and, and dramatic gains early on. But there was a back end to his decision strategically. He really couldn't sustain what he had conquered because the strength of the Nephite armies was still intact and they were still on the periphery of the nation and they were able to move in and put a stop to what Coriantumr had done. So there's something very interesting in all of that. The use of the word nor, N-O-R, in verse 31, has been commented upon by Donald Perry. Uh, he, he talks about how really it's a, fr- a form of scriptural poetry. He says, working out, or Greek exergesia, is a figure where two or more lines deliberate or explain what was first said in line one. Another example of working out exists in Helaman chapter 1, verse 31. And now, behold, the Lamanites could not retreat either way, neither on, the so, neither on the north, nor on the south, nor on the east, nor on the west, for they were surrounded on every hand by the Nephites. The fact that the Lamanites were not able to retreat either way is explained in the verses that follow. So now, for the final two verses in this chapter, verses 33 and 34, we will find uh, something that we, we really hope for uh, does take place. These these uh, conquered Lamanites are sent back to their land. Uh, they're, they're not slain, and so it seems that Moroni Ha has a similar approach to this as his father Moroni did. And uh, I don't think it says, uh, well, it does say that they should depart out of the land in peace, but it doesn't say that they entered into a covenant of peace, but it's kind of implied here. So verse 33, And it came to pass that Moroni Ha took possession of the city of Zarahemla again, and caused that the Lamanites who had been taken prisoners should depart out of the land in peace. And thus ended the forty and first year of the reign of the judges. To this idea that these Lamanites were allowed to depart out of their land in peace, McConkie and Millet have written, In contrast to the treatment of prisoners and innocent victims of war by the Lamanites, Moroniha allows the Lamanite prisoners of war to depart in peace. Those righteous military leaders who are disciples of Christ and are filled with the Spirit of the Lord treat even their enemies with kindness and compassion. Even in most difficult circumstances, such as war, the Lord expects his disciples to love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Now for a final piece of commentary, coming back to Daniel Peterson, and just considering this strategic maneuver uh, by Coriantumr, and that was undoubtedly sanctioned by the king, Tubaloth, the son of Amaron, uh, this this strategy that, that gave them such dramatic early gains uh, ultimately led to their downfall. Uh, Peterson says, Coriantumr launched a kind of blitzkrieg, piercing the Nephite border defenses and seized the capital city of Zarahemla. The conquest was quick and, for the moment, total. As Hugh Nibley points out, his drive had been successful because it was completely unexpected. And it had been unexpected because it was utterly foolish. It was utterly foolish, because having penetrated the Nephite defense on the circumference and seizing the center of the land, Coriantumr was now, by the very nature of his own successes, surrounded. Following a bloody battle in which Coriantumr was killed, it left them no alternative but surrender. It was a humiliating defeat. Well, at this point, we're really led to wonder, basically, when will the Lamanites try again? Uh, Because they will. And uh, 
uh, we'll, we'll discover that this uh, comes about in Helaman chapter 4, so we'll have much to read about prior to that chapter, and we'll learn more about this um, secret society that, that uh, has been formed around Kishkumen, and also, as we'll see, around Gadianton, and uh, what it is that they're able to accomplish with their dark works. And so we'll learn more about that and more about the righteousness or lack thereof of Nephite civilization and uh, many other incredible and interesting things. Before we circle back around to this, uh, this narrative of war that takes place between the Lamanites and Nephites. So for now, this brings us to the end of Helaman chapter 1. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.